This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So learning about how bankruptcy works, and again, I I say this probably a couple of times every show, that the word bankruptcy has so many connotations, Mm -hmm. and none of them are good. No. But I know that there's a way that you talk about it uh, and actually facilitate it for folks that it can be the, the end game, the best way to proceed. So this segment's all about the ins and outs of it. Lots of people just dismiss the idea completely of filing for personal bankruptcy because of the fear or the misinformation mm-hmm. that's been around for a very long time. So let's, let's talk about if I was to walk in the door and say, okay, I need your help, um, and I'm thinking bankruptcy is the way to go. How would you explain it mm-hmm. to somebody walking in the door? Yeah, and Elaine, that's something we do, you know, cumulatively probably a hundred times a day across the, the office network here. And, and, you know, we don't get tired of doing it um, because, you know, essentially bankruptcy, it's a beginning. A lot of people think, you know, it's the end of the story. It's the end of my life. Oh, my God, I filed for bankruptcy. But the people that call me a year or two or five years after their discharge, they say, oh, my God, this was my new beginning. This is when I got to start again, unburdened by this debt that I had accumulated for whatever reason. It could be completely out of their control or within their control, but they're in a bad situation. Bankruptcy lets you start again. So that's really important. So what happens when you file for bankruptcy? Um, it's a federally regulated legal option that allows you to have all of your debts written off and you start again owing nobody anything. Your credit score is not a factor in the process. You don't need to be behind in any of your bills. You just have to make the decision that you know this is the right option for you to move forward. Um, in Canada, bankruptcy laws are relatively uh, way be wide open as the wrong term, but relatively um, accessible, meaning that you only have to owe more than $1,000 and not be able to make those payments on a monthly basis. You know, a lot of people say it's called applying for bankruptcy as if there's some uncertainty, maybe you could accept it or not. But in Canada, it's basically you declare bankruptcy. You sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. um, The trustee explains to you, here's how a bankruptcy process would work. um, And then you make the decision to go forward, execute on those documents. You'll be in bankruptcy for a period of time. We're going to talk about that period, definitely not as long as you think, typically as short as nine months. Uh, And then at the end of that period of time, you move forward and your debt gets left behind. So because it's federally regulated, are the rules different for bankruptcy across the country? Slightly. So okay. the, the federal law is obviously the same across the country, but sure. there's also some provincial laws that interact. So okay. uh, if you file for bankruptcy in BC, there are provincial laws that say, hey, you're allowed to keep a house with a certain amount of equity. You're allowed to keep a vehicle worth up to a certain amount. Those things can change province to province. So if you're in Alberta, your house situation might be totally different than in BC, but generally the framework is roughly the same. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, ki- what kinds of debts or types of debts can bankruptcy help with? Yeah. Yeah, this is one where there's huge misconceptions. I have people call me all the time and say, okay, I've got this credit card debt. I want to go bankrupt on this, but I know you can't help me with my income taxes, my student loans, or something like that. So 
in general, bankruptcy can help with just about every debt. And let's go through a bit of a laundry yeah, list here just to make sure people know. Because I think it's important uh, because there are different kinds. And, and and like you said, well, what about student loans? What about mm-hmm. income tax? Well, that's why we're going to talk yeah, about each of them. Exactly. So uh, just starting off here. So obviously consumer and business debt. So things like credit cards, lines of credit, overdrafts, payday loans. Essentially, you borrowed money from an institution. You can't pay them back as they are agreed. That's a debt that could be included in a bankruptcy. Uh, income tax debt. This is really important. A lot of people think there's nothing you can do to deal with the government. There absolutely, there's two things you can do to deal with the government. One is a bankruptcy, the other is a consumer proposal. But in a bankruptcy, income tax debt like taxes, personal taxes, uh, GST, business taxes, payroll remittances, um, just about any debt owing to the government is something that can be discharged or gotten rid of through a bankruptcy filing. And I just want to throw in, it's a, a licensed insolvency trustee. They're the only people that mm-hmm. can help you with that. Absolutely. And a couple of other ones as well, but it's really important to know that. Yeah, if you've got tax debt, for example, you know, if you want to dispute the debt and challenge it and do appeals, okay, that's not what a trustee's going to help you with. But if this is a valid debt, it's just you can't pay it. A trustee's the only person that's going to be able to help you work out a reasonable payment plan that'll extend past six months because six months is what the government will give you to pay off a tax debt. Most people can't even come close to that. They need a lot more time. Okay, what about student loans? Because they're mm-hmm. often those that really hard thing that, that's yeah. unforgivable sometimes. Yeah, you just hear these huge numbers of graduates emerging with a lot of debt and not being able to pay it. Um, So there's three different types of of student loans. There's federal, provincial, and there's private student loans. So a private student loan, very easy to include in a bankruptcy. There's no special status. So I see this a lot sometimes with medical professionals. So maybe a doctor who didn't get to finish medical school or a chiropractor or a naturopath. Uh, Banks are very often willing to uh, advance private lines of credit to these individuals because they think the income potential is going to be there, if that person can't complete their program of study or isn't making a lot of money or health issues or something, if they had to go into a bankruptcy, that private student loan could be dealt with no matter the timing. Got it. Now, if it's a government student loan, there is some carve-outs in the law that require that you make a really good faith effort to earn income before they're willing to let you uh, write off your student loan. So for federal and provincial student loans, it has to be seven years from the day you were last a student to when if you filed a bankruptcy or even a proposal, that student loan could be written off. If you filed a bankruptcy before those seven years, all of your other debts could be dealt with, but that student loan is still going to be something you'll have to deal with after the bankruptcy is over. It remains active. Mm -hmm. What else? Um, ICBC debt. So um, obviously the company many people love to hate in BC (laughs) because our insurance rates seem to be pretty high comparatively. Um, But I've had situations, lots of situations where, you know, someone is maybe driving, um, they were a new driver and didn't have the experienced person with them. Mm. There was an accident caused and for whatever reason they were denied coverage. ICBC debts can get very large very quickly, you know, into the millions sometimes, Um, depending on the substance of the debt, as long as it's not, you know, something criminal, there wasn't drunk driving, no one was killed as a result of negligence just about any ICBC debt is something that can be dealt with in a bankruptcy. So that's one where we clarify with ICBC before we file anything, how is this going to be dealt with? And well over 90, 95% of the times, ICBC says, yep, this can be dealt with in a bankruptcy proceeding. Okay, what about secured debts? Yeah, so this is things like, let's say you had a leased vehicle, uh, or if you even had a mortgage, and you had to end those commitments. So um, you had to sell the house, or the house went into foreclosure, um, or you had to get the car taken back because you couldn't make the payments uh, on a lease. In those cases, the creditor is going to have some remedy against you. You know, The bank is going to come after you in a mortgage if they don't sell the house for enough of what's owed to them. Mm-hmm. If you file for bankruptcy, all of those shortfalls can be included in the bankruptcy as well. Okay. And personal debts. Yeah. So any debts owing 
loan to an individual. And, and trust me, sometimes individuals don't want this to, to be the case. Like, well, I just loaned this person money. Why am I on the same footing as Royal Bank or CIBC? Well, because the law says a dollar is a dollar. So whether it's a personal debt or a debt to a bank or a debt someone's guaranteed or not, um, all of those can be dealt with in a bankruptcy. There's no separate status for personal or family debts. Now, and in a bankruptcy, not everything, as we as we said right off the top, gets written off. Mm-hmm. You already talked about the student loans where the bankruptcies filed within seven years of you finishing school, yep. but the other two ones that are very important. Yeah, they're, they're typically logical, and this would make sense. You know, I wouldn't want to be helping people walk away from their child or their spousal support obligations, for example. So those are two that you just cannot discharge as part of a bankruptcy. You've got amounts owing for child support or spousal support. They're unaffected by a bankruptcy. If they're being enforced by FMEP, Family Maintenance Enforcement, um, that can still continue often as part of a bankruptcy. So support arrears, if that's your big issue, bankruptcy is not going to solve it. But quite often, people are behind on their support because of all the other things that are going on in their life. All the other unsecured debts or student loans or things that are making them unable to honor the most important of obligations. Now, not everyone's going to be affected by this, but what about court fines? Because mm-hmm. that happens. Yeah, it does happen. I don't see it very often, but sure. if the court said, hey, you must pay back a fine for restitution or something like that. Totally unrelated to your to the bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's something that would continue on in the bankruptcy. So a very short list, court-imposed fines, support payments, and then student loans. Those are the main things. And again, student loans is just within the seven years. Uh, the other two, it's a little more cut and dry. They just can't be helped in the bankruptcy. Okay. Can you walk us through how a bankruptcy uh, filing gets started? Yeah. So the first step, and this is often the toughest step, is to reach out for help. So it's to give Sands and Associates a call. Um, you sit down with one of our professionals at one of our local offices. We've got 17 of them networked around the, the province right now. And you sit down for a free initial consultation. You know, During that initial consultation, we're just going to try to answer some pretty big questions to figure out what's the right solution for you. We're going to figure out you know, who you owe money to and how much. You know, what assets do you have? Is there the ability to pay off this debt without us getting involved? What's your household income and how many people are living under the roof? Is there mm-hmm. a good budget that's going to allow you to pay anything on your debts? Uh, or is it a situation where you've got to make some adjustments before we even know what we're going to be able to do about the debts? Right. Uh, we need to know if you're filed up to date on your taxes and whether you've ever done a bankruptcy or a proposal before. Okay. So we talk about all that stuff in the initial consultation. And our objective here, you know, bankruptcy is the last resort. We're going to look at every other option before then. Um, so, you know, consider, can you consolidate the debt? Well, usually that's pretty difficult if you don't have assets or a great credit rating. We'll consider, you know, is there the ability to negotiate with your creditors on your own? Usually that's a bit tough. We'll consider whether a consumer proposal could work. We'll go right. through all of these things and you're going to leave that first meeting with a really good sense. Here's the options. Here's how I can go through. Some of them include Sands and Associates. Some of them don't. And then the person can make an informed decision on what their next step would be. Okay, so let's say your decision is to uh, file for bankruptcy. What comes next? So the trustee is going to prepare a bunch of legal documents. So typically you'll meet with the trustee a couple of times, getting all the documents together, and then you'll sit down, you'll spend about an hour signing all the bankruptcy documents, and that's day one of the bankruptcy. So it's at this point, the trustee is going to notify the creditors, the people that you owe money to, they've got no further remedy against you. They can't call you, harass you, take you to court, demand or collect any payments, um, and the trustee steps in the middle between you and your creditors. You know, a lot of people are worried it's going to be a public filing if you file for bankruptcy. I was just going to ask. Yeah, and that's a huge misconception. So um, 
We've done a ton of bankruptcy filings this year, as we know that the numbers are really increasing. I don't think there's been any I've had to put in the newspaper personally. Usually it's maybe one or two a year, and they're very specific circumstances of somebody where there's a ton of assets that are being sold. For the vast majority of cases, high 90-something percent of cases, there's no newspaper notification. There's no employer notification. The only people that know are the people that have to know, which are the people that you owe money to, the trustee, and then the regulatory system that oversees all of that. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, that the process usually takes around nine months for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but before uh, before they're re- so nine months before you're released from bankruptcy. So what actually happens in that time? Yeah, so three big things over that nine month period. So the first thing every month, you have to give a monthly budget to the trustee. So the cost and the duration of the bankruptcy depends 100% of your monthly income. It doesn't matter about the debt. So you'll do a budget every month uh, and you'll prove your income to the trustee with bank statements or pay stubs. You'll come for two financial counseling sessions. The first one's in the first two months. The second one's about five or six months in. Um, And then you'll make payments typically of about $200 a month over a nine-month period. If somebody's low income, that's essentially bankruptcy in a nutshell. They do do budgets, they do counseling, and they pay minimum bankruptcy fees over a nine-month period. And I think that counseling is probably one of the most important elements in this discussion. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that it doesn't get repeated. So if any of this information is resonating with you or maybe someone that you know to learn more about bankruptcy and other debt solutions, get your confidential and it's free debt consultation by calling Sands & Associates toll-free, and this is their number, 1-800-661-3030, or visit the website, which is terrific, tons of information on it, at Sands dash trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So life after a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, I think this is a great topic for a segment because if you're... Wanting to get some debt help, one of the things would be, okay, what then? Like, what's the long-term impact if I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy for sure? Is this going to ruin my life? Yeah, I want to know what the impact's going to be. Not the month-to-month. When it's done, what happens then? So, cool. I'm glad we're doing this. Mm -hmm. So, first thing is, let's. can we talk about the length of each? Is yeah, there a of a difference? consumer proposal and a bankruptcy. You know, first yeah. off, how you even get started is, well, you come for a few meetings. So typically with Sands & Associates, you meet us three times. So okay. the first meeting is an initial consultation. Uh, we come in, you know, blank sheet of paper, ready to listen to all about the situation. You hopefully bring in a bit of information about your debts, about your assets, about your income, and we review everything, answer all your questions, and we have a bit of an idea of what some good solutions are for you. Okay. At that point, you go Customized, away. I might oh, add, of course, right? Yeah. It's completely based on what I have when I I walk in the door. Yeah, exactly. So if someone's got, you know, $5,000 of debt, it's a different solution than someone with $50,000 or 500000 So yeah. um, assets and circumstances, you know, someone 80 years old has different objections than someone at 20 years old. Sure. So absolutely, it's a customized debt, debt solution. So the first meeting is kind of high level in general. The second meeting, which can be just a couple days later or maybe a week later if you need to get information together, that's when you bring in all of the details. So you bring in, you know, your last year's taxes, you bring in the most recent bills, your pay stubs, nothing too extreme but just basic stuff to prove everything you've told us about your debts and your assets. And then we review everything again. And we say, okay, we looked at a bankruptcy. We looked at a proposal. Um, here were the implications, the various payments. And the person typically makes a decision at that point on how to proceed. 
We meet a third time, which is usually a couple days later. We've prepared all the legal documents, and that's when the proceeding starts. So all three of those meetings can happen in the space of a week. Sometimes people spread them over a few months. We're indifferent to whatever pace the client wants to move at. And really importantly, no one makes any payments until and unless they've decided to file a formal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. There's no payments for the first couple meetings. If it's just free advice, well, then you move on with a little more information than when you started. Now, once you're into the proceedings, a consumer proposal can go for a maximum of five years but typically two to three years is when most people pay off their consumer proposals. Uh, Bankruptcy is often a little bit shorter. So if someone's never been in bankruptcy before, if they're low income, bankruptcy is done inside of a year. So about nine months typically. If you're not low income, it's about a year different. So it's about 21 months in total. Neither of them are, you know, seven, 10 year type of cycles. They're generally, uh, bankruptcy is done within a couple of years, a proposal, a maximum of five, but typically about two to three years. Okay. So what happens then at the end or when these when both of these things are completed. So if I if I did a consumer proposal with you mm-hmm. and I did my what would you say 24 to 48 months yeah, that's sort of the like average. Yep. So I'm in the end of 48 mm-hmm. number 48 months. Yeah, so in a consumer proposal you got two obligations. One is to make all the payments which you've now done and to come for two counseling sessions which you normally do in the first 6 months or so. So okay. we're going to assume that those have been wait. done as well. I no. do those in the beginning. No, by law they got to be done pretty well up front to give you all the habits to you know change things over time. Oh, excellent. Okay, yeah. that makes good sense. Exactly. Exactly. So when you're done the proposal, um, the trustee reviews everything, all the payments, looks at all the claims, makes sure everything's been administered the right way, and then issues a certificate of completion or a full performance. So it's basically a legal certificate that absolves you from anything to do with these debts in the future. It says full and final settlement on everything you've done in the proposal, and you move forward with your life at that point. Um, if it's a bankruptcy, it's a little bit different um, in that there's a discharge. So when you go into bankruptcy, you're in the legal state of bankruptcy, uh, and the court has to agree to remove you from that legal state of bankruptcy. So it's more severe than a proposal. In a proposal, there's no sense that you're in bankruptcy or not. You're just doing a payment arrangement. Right. In a bankruptcy, you have to be discharged from bankruptcy. And at the end of either nine months or 21 months, if you've done everything you're supposed to do in the bankruptcy, you've given us all of your income information, you've cooperated on all the proceedings, um, the trustee signs a document called the Certificate of Discharge, which discharges you from bankruptcy and absolves you from all of those debts. So it's very similar to a consumer proposal, but the important thing in a bankruptcy is that people could object. So in a consumer proposal, if you pay everything off, it's all good and done and you get your certificate. If it's in a bankruptcy, if someone says, you know, we think you've been fraudulent or maybe you've gotten rid of some assets and we didn't like that, they can apply to have matters heard in court. There's a little bit more of an uncertainty, but that's low single digit percentages. Quite often people just get their certificate from their trustee. The bankruptcy comes and goes pretty streamlined. Okay. And in a consumer proposal, nobody's going to come back at you because they had to agree in the first place. That's exactly it. Yeah. So they're they're happy. They're just happy. Yeah, Happy con- to be getting some money. In a consumer proposal, at least a majority of your debt had to say yes. Um, and if there is you know, a minority creditor that really didn't want the deal, well, unfortunately, they didn't have enough votes to get it changed. So you're right. right they, they lose a lot of their ammunition. In a bankruptcy, a bankruptcy is kind of forced on the creditors. They don't have any right to say yes or sure. no until the end, which is when they can object to the person finishing the bankruptcy. Makes sense. So I know that people get all concerned about credit scores mm-hmm. in a consumer proposal. Do they get impacted? And in a bankruptcy, do they get impacted and what kind of impact? 
Yeah, so yes is the answer in both. So anytime you don't pay back all your debts in full with all the interest that they want, your credit takes a hit. That's the price of restructuring your debts. Now, it's not a lifelong sentence by any means, and we've often talked on this show how much smarter it is to take a short-term hit on your credit, clear off all the bad debt that you're dealing with, and then rebuild your credit with no debt. You'll be so much better off. Um, But the nuts and bolts of it are that if you did a consumer proposal, from the day you pay off the proposal, so if you pay it off in three years, the proposal is going to clear two to three years after after that last payment, depending on the bureau. To be safe, let's say three years. Okay. So for the next three years after you've paid off that proposal, if someone looks at your credit, they're going to see all of your accounts and they're going to see, oh, included in consumer proposal. Okay. Now, anything new that you do after that is going to start to show up and the more new information you put in your credit report, usually within about a couple years after the proposal, even though it's still on your credit report, people can get mortgages, they can get car loans, they can apply for credit. So what you really do after the proposal matters a lot more than what happened before. Okay. Okay. Is everything itemized in terms of uh, the the transaction date? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every account on your credit report is going to show last activity, Got you know, it. when they receive dividends, all of that stuff. Okay. And now, oftentimes, we talk about this a lot, there's often inaccuracies on credit reports. So whether it's a bankruptcy or a proposal, we tell everybody three months after you're finished, get copies of your credit reports just to make sure everything's updated correctly, because oftentimes there are issues there. Got it. Now, with the bankruptcy from a credit rating point of view, a bankruptcy is typically over more quickly than a consumer consumer proposal, but its credit rating lasts longer. So a lot of people think bankruptcy takes seven years. Well, it doesn't. It takes less than one year for most people, but it's noted on your credit report for six years after you finish it. So that's where kind of that seven-year myth comes from. Now, really importantly, just because it's on there for six years doesn't mean you can't get credit if you rebuild the right way. If you decide not to touch any credit until six years is gone, well, then yeah, you're going to have a zero rating. It's going to be pretty tough to start from there. But in our counseling sessions, we tell you, as soon as you're discharged, go out and get a secured credit card. If you're, if you're trying to build credit again, go out and get a secured credit card. You can never go over the limit, never get into trouble. But the best credit cards every month are going to put a good story on your credit report. We're going to tell you to try to save money, do an RRSP loan every year at tax time. That's going to report positively on your credit. And we're also going to tell you to pay the darn little cell phone every month because that's right. the number one thing that puts negative things on your credit. So to attend to every expenditure every month and make sure just the little bills don't get missed because those can really cause you an impact. Now, is it, it? We just have a minute or so left. Is should we talk about how long it takes for someone to establish new credit? I mean, mm-hmm. is that that's a variable as well? Yeah, but with the right steps, um, there's a really a formula, and it's two to three years from okay. you know zero to hero, so to speak. Like to, from literally, you are in bankruptcy with no assets to you could be getting a mortgage can be as little as two to three years, um, and that's based on when you come out of a bankruptcy, you owe nobody anything. And what creditors tend to really put a lot of weight towards is about the last two years of history. So if you come out of a bankruptcy on a proposal, you get a couple of credit cards, you have limits that are relatively low, but you keep them less than 50% utilized, so you don't go over half of your limit, within a couple of years, you'll find that your credit rating has significantly improved. And does that include credit cards as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, credit cards are your number one way to improve the rating. That's what they measure a lot of the time. Okay. And car loans, too, that seems to be the other thing that people sort of... Are, are when they're in debt, yeah. a car loan can sometimes be part of that. You want to be careful because sometimes that's used to sell really high cost financing. Sometimes, you know, 30% per annum car financing to say yeah. it helps you build your credit. It's not worth that. Um, but yeah, the, a good car loan at a reasonable rate can help for sure. If you want to find out more information, get more information, sit down with somebody. I'm going to give you a phone number for Sands & Associates. They have 17 offices in British Columbia. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030 to get that first consultation as well as to find an office near you.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us, Raj Hara, who is a Senior Vice President at Sands & Associates. He's a licensed insolvency trustee, chartered professional accountant, as well as certified management accountant and chartered insolvency and restructuring professional with over 10 years of experience and fluent in Punjabi. So if you're thinking, oh, gee, I've got family that could use some help uh, and Punjabi is their is their first language Raj is the guy to go see which is I think terrific that Sands and Associates is is able to sort of get through those language barriers for folks um, we're talking about I want to start Raj if I can when when you walked in here this afternoon you were saying you know what I was listening people are talking about the economy and you were just on Skytrain coming into town is that right correct yeah. and uh, and I thought that was so interesting mm-hmm. it seems to be on everyone's mind what's going on. I, I know it is on mine. Uh, just if you're paying attention to what's going on in the news, it's a bit, you know, unsettling. Mm-hmm. Unsettling, I think, is probably the best word to describe it. Uh, but you overheard conversations similar as well, people wondering what's going on these days. Yeah, it was odd to hear an individual talking about an inverted yield curve. <laughs> and, Whatever that is. And I have yeah. to say, that I'm, I'm not going to try to define it here on air, but uh, it's generally, a, it's an indicator of a recession. And you're also hearing people talking about reducing interest rates. You sure. know, we went through this big push of the stress test on mortgages. Now the Bank of Canada is talking about reducing rates. And, yeah. um, you know, if it's any indicator, just going through my social media feed, there's uh, investment planners talking about what do you do in a low interest rate economy, why well, have a balanced portfolio? So I think uh, the market conditions are front of mind for a, a lot of individuals. I think so too. I think so too. People that wouldn't normally be thinking about it are thinking about it right now. You're even hearing of negative interest rates, which, my God, how does that work? They're paying you money to borrow. And that's exactly. happening in, in some countries around the world. So, and yeah, just to your point, Raj, yeah, I didn't even, I'd never heard the inverted yield curve outside of an econ classroom. I'm hearing it as well. It's pop culture right now. It seems to be forecasting when this economy is going to tip over the cliff, not if. That's interesting. Very interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. well, let's get started then. Uh, can we go with a first question that we've got on the on the sheet about with Raj? Certainly. So the difference, uh, what is different uh, about helping people with businesses versus helping individuals who don't have their own business? I mean, it's I mean, we're, we're privy to a lot of information this, these days and data from all sorts and ways of life. But there is a big difference between the two. And people's attitudes must be very different as well. Like what's going to affect me and what's going to affect you? Two different things. Yeah, there is definitely a difference because uh, a business is a separate entity. And you need to understand how the person's operating it. And if anything, a business is like a child for a lot of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. You often hear that the business is my baby, right? It's yeah. Per- yeah, it's yeah. personal. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It's they've put everything into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's very difficult to come to a point to say, well, maybe the business isn't viable. Um, usually an individual will come in and they'll have phone calls from creditors. They're being harassed and they know they're at a debt problem and, and, and it's just not going to resolve itself. Mm-hmm. But with business owners, what I find is getting to that understanding or coming to that acceptance that the business may not be viable. Yep. It's very difficult to come to. And I think that's a clear difference is for uh, a business to set up, a corporation is set up to separate yourself from risk. But often entrepreneurs bring themselves right into the fold of mm-hmm. the risk and they don't realize how far they've come in until they take a moment to realize where they are and take uh, take skill and and stock of where they are and how they move forward from there. And something might have pushed them to, to force them to take stock 
whatever whatever mm-hmm. it may be, right? And there's a lot of influences that impact folks in business. Yeah, I find the, the one thing consistently that I find with, with people um, who have their own business when eventually they're coming to see me is they often say, oh my God, I let this go too long. I invested too many personal assets. It's so hard, I think, to figure out when is the last dollar that you're going to invest into your business um, because you're an eternal optimist as an entrepreneur. You know, if, if August was terrible, you think September is going to be three times that you're going to get it back and so on and so forth. The next quarter, the next year is always going to be better. So to have someone from a third party point of view, look at the cold hard facts and say, you know, you really have to consider where, whether this is a viable business, that can be difficult, that can be emotional. And even the way you deliver that, that news, Raj, I know if it's me, I'm not saying your business isn't viable. It's like saying, you know, I don't like your child, so to speak. No, mm-hmm. it's here's a couple things to consider. And, you know, are you comfortable with the level of exposure, the level of risk that you're now taking on as part of the business? I found um, in discussions with business owners, there's, there's really a couple of points that they, I help them think about so they can determine whether or not their business is viable. The first thing is straightforward is, uh, do you owe any money to Canada Revenue Agency for GST or source deductions? Yeah. Uh, forget the corporate income tax. Let's just talk about those two. Because yeah. GST, you've collected. It's not really revenue. You've collected it and right. you're required to remit it to the crown. Yeah. Or source deductions, you've taken that money off your employee's paycheck and you're required to send that to CRA. It's just, it's, it's not real revenue. If you're relying on that to bankroll your business, well, then you've got to give it a hard thought. Okay, and and if that's not happening, well, that's a very positive if you're not doing that. But the next thing is it, it's a it's an interesting conversation with business owners, and I, I ask them the question: So, if you were to go work for a competitor, what would you want them to pay you? Mm-hmm. And they hum and they haw and they figure it out, and they come up with a number. I said, well, how much was your corporation able to pay you last year? Oh, paid me a third of what I would expect. Well, then now we have to have a conversation of. How can this business, you should be making more than what uh, somebody else would be paying you because if you're going to work for a third party, mm, the they, risk. They, mm. there's a risk. And plus the third party, if they employ you, they need to be, in order for commerce, they, they need to be making more money off of you than what you they're paying you as a salary mm-hmm. or else the business is not viable. Right. So that's, that's the interesting conversation and usually a starting point to then start talking about what the options they have with the corporation or personally, right? So that's interesting. So just in really simple terms, is CRA your biggest source of financing? That's mm-hmm. a big test. Is it the GST and the source deduction, those funds that aren't yours, but you're using? Is that the way that you're keeping operating? That's a really good litmus test to start. Um, and then your your other point as well is, you know, are you getting fair value for your services? And it should be even higher than fair value because you're taking the risk as an entrepreneur. I can think about a lot of individuals I've sat down with, you know, if they, even if they're not using the government to finance them, they're almost never getting fair value for what they're doing. They might have been in the past, but as the business declines, the op, the entrepreneur is always the last to be paid, takes the least out at the end of the day. They, they also try to make... they. Uh, end up making uh, matters worse for themselves is just the way that they draw their salary out of the business too. They may not take it as a paycheck. They may take it as a dividend because they've received tax advice that taking out as a dividend, you pay less tax. That's great advice if the company is solvent. But if it's having financial difficulty, well, that what that ends up doing is Canada Revenue Agency views that and they'll come after you personally as a director if you're taking money out of a company as a dividend where their thought process is, why are you paying money to the shareholders when you owe money to the, to the government? So, you know, that's a bit of a pickle in itself. Well, and another point on that too, Raj, is if you're taking all your money in dividends, you know, when you hit age 65 and you want your CPP, what happens then? You haven't paid in. 
Exactly. Right. So uh, there's a couple things that you want to think about. You know, we deal with individuals sometimes where they've been doing cash jobs for a long time, and you, know, you tell them, well, obviously it's illegal, so on and so forth. But there is a financial impact as well that at age 65 you need those CPP benefits, and they're not going to be there if you don't actually pay in. So it's important to have a salary even as an entrepreneur. I agree. When's the best time to come and see either one of you guys? If I'm a business, if I'm an entrepreneur, I would think before I start before I started up or just after I start up because what you guys have been talking about are really, really important key things, especially the future stuff when you're talking about, well, when you're 60 or 65 and you're taking CPP and you Mm -hmm. just haven't paid into it. I mean, there's there's a... there's a lot of things that one has to pay attention to when you're doing this kind of work. Yeah, and you know, we've often said on this show, you know, it's it's almost a travesty that there's no crash course required. There's right. nothing you need to do to suddenly become self-employed. You know, we can even start up a corporation sometimes online without even sitting down with a lawyer. So all this structuring stuff that we're talking about seems, you know, just very basic things. Of course, you should do it, but unless you actively go out and research it, you're not going to know this stuff and you often will make some mistakes there. So, um, you know, a trustee is typically not someone you see when you start up your business. You'd be more sitting down with a lawyer. But absolutely, if you've got questions on your structure or where you're heading, phone Raj or phone myself, we'd be happy to help. Well, yeah, how to avoid this, this, and this at the end of the day. That's what, that's why I go and see you guys. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I know one thing, Raj, that people often really wonder and it hesitates for them to come in to see us is they say, you know, if I go into bankruptcy, does it mean I lose my business? Or if I do my proposal, do I lose my business? Can I still operate? Can I still again have my business if I deal with my debts. So how do you answer a question like that? Well, uh, there's a requirement, uh, I guess there's a restriction that if you're in bankruptcy, you cannot be a director of a corporation. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you can be a director of a corporation if you're, if you file the consumer proposal. So if you're a business owner, most business owners will go towards a consumer proposal. However, uh, you don't want to keep the business afloat if there's a whole bunch of debt within the company which you are going to personally be liable for. It might mm-hmm. be worthwhile just to close the business for that. So common ones are source, uh, Canada Revenue Agency debts for GST and source deductions. If the corporation's unable to pay, well, that's the director's liability. So then mm-hmm. those are one things. Or um, a topic that we hear people talking about piercing the corporate bill, that means that uh, uh, directors have uh, signed guarantees uh, personally guaranteed corporate debts. So if the corporation's unable to pay, well, then it falls upon the director. So I think back to your question, yeah, if, you, if you're in a director of a corporation, you can file a proposal, but you got to be careful about that. See what kind of liability you've opened your, yourself up to under the corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, a common one that people don't really realize is a commercial lease. Mm-hmm. Is that's a lease is a commitment for five years. And if you're only one year into it, you're still personally liable for the other four years. Right. Which could be a large number. Yeah, I know sometimes when I sit down with individuals too, sometimes we even look at the structure and say, you are incorporated now, but do you need to be? Should you be? There's extra costs. You've got a separate entity now, extra financial statements, accounting, legal fees. Sometimes people are better off being a proprietor. And so sometimes doing a proposal or even going through a bankruptcy, it gives someone a chance to just basically reset their entire structure and go back to something sometimes a little more simple, definitely a little more cost effective. Because oftentimes the reason someone incorporated, you know, to protect themselves from liability, to your point, Raj, they end up frustrating that because they do guarantee things or they get into trouble with the government, which you can't limit yourself from source deductions or GST debt that follows the director of the corporation. Now, we've just got about a minute left. Could we have a success story where somebody that you've helped and they've figured it out and they've come out the other end? Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. There's several, there's several success Yay! stories. Yeah. So, Good to hear. Uh, so we talked about consumer proposal. Yeah. There's a corporate proposal. So it's a division one proposal, but let's not get technical on it. And what it basically is, is a business owner saying, listen, I can't 
pay back my debts in full, but this is what I can offer to pay the creditors, okay? And Canada Revenue Agency is quite sympathetic towards it as well, too, because if it's a corporation with 10 or 15 employees, if the corporation goes into bankruptcy, well, then 10 or 15 families have lost a salary, and it's very difficult to obtain, in certain industries, hard to uh, obtain employment as well, too. So we've helped out companies where we've developed a plan, it's gone to the creditors, it's allowed them to stay in business, and in fact, their old suppliers continue to supply them as well, too, and they continue in, uh, going forward and still have a great business. Uh, uh, one that we helped out several years ago is continuing to expand, and they're in the hospitality business doing fantastic, but wow. they just needed a fresh start to move forward. Uh, check out the website, sans-trustee.com. It's just filled with such good information uh, for individuals as well as companies, and if, you, if you're in a, a situation where you need some help, get, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first consultation and find an office near you. There's 17 in British Columbia. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So lots of people talk about credit scores when it comes to sort of as a barometer for your Mm -hmm. financial health. And this segment's going to be all about figuring out or finding out why that might not be the best measure, one, and two, that it kind of doesn't matter, which I thought a bit shocking. I know not everybody yeah. knows that. I know that you've said before uh, you should try to figure out how to maintain, um, instead of trying to maintain that perfect credit score, figure out how to get out of debt. Exactly. That's the number one thing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the credit score. Yeah. So my take on credit scores, and I've been doing personal insolvency work for quite some time, I think this is the greatest magic trick of misdirection played by the financial industry against consumers in that they're directing us to be so focused on this indicator, which actually has very little to do with whether we're doing well or not doing well financially, but has everything to do with, are we making the bank money every month? Are we paying our interest costs every month? And that's, I remember when we first talked about that, I was sh- Shocked mm-hmm. that that's what it was based on because yeah. you just because it's it it's a misnomer. It doesn't indicate that that's what that's about. Well, and it's everywhere now too. And you're seeing you know all, all this more you know free credit score monitoring or check your score and all this stuff. It's coming out with these you know different high interest debt type of providers, but they provide free credit score monitoring. So it's an added value, and, and to me, it's not. But right. Uh, so repeat again why why it's not a why it's not a good indicator. Well, that's what we're going to talk about in some good detail here. But you know, in a nutshell, the person who has the best financial situation of a ton of assets and is paying zero amounts of interest every month, paying nothing on their debts, probably has a terrible credit score. The clients that come in to see me quite often, 70% of them or more, have perfect credit. They might have $80,000 in debt, credit card debt, payday loans, no assets to speak of to clear that debt, but because they make all their minimum payments every month, they're never late on anything, the bank gets all their interest payments, their credit score could look great from that so metric. It's determined by the bank, and that's the mm-hmm. thing to remember as we go through this. So uh, do you want to do basic stuff about yeah. the credit score? Okay, good. <laughs> Let's do that. It's a number. Yeah. So, you know, people talk about their credit rating, their credit score. Your credit score is a number and it ranges from a low of about 300 to a high of about 900. So, you know, generally anything over about 800 is quite good. And that's what most people would shoot for. 
But the essential thing to know here is anytime you get a free credit score online, it's essentially fictional. You know, no one knows the exact algorithm that your bank that you're going to be applying for is going to be using because they're all different. Okay. So when you sit down with Royal Bank or with BMO or with CIBC, your credit score could be completely different from each lender because the algorithms algorithms that they use are slightly different in how they calculate the, the actual metric. So that's weird that there isn't mm-hmm. sort of a stand, uh, industry standard. No, so it's indicative. So, you know, you know, if you get your free credit score and it's 800, it's not going to come back at 300 at a different bank, right. but it could be quite a bit different from institution to institution. So, you know, chasing a certain number based on, you know, a third-party metric doesn't make a whole lot of sense because your bank might have a completely different number, might weight things a little bit different. Okay. So, do you want to move on to the next piece then? Why, uh, d- why is a credit score and credit report such a poor measure of your financial standing? It's of showing you how well or how you're how well or not very well. How you're. I'm not. I'm not saying that properly. I get what you're saying. You're either doing well or you're not doing well. Right. So let's talk about a couple scenarios where your credit score might be high, but you're actually not doing too well. Right. So a couple ways your credit score might be high, and this is the one that I see all the time, is you're only making minimum payments. So you got a bunch of this debt that's out there, but you know you might be paying two hundred dollars a month on a debt that's thirty thousand dollars because all it is is the minimum payments that's clearing interest, and that could be your credit card. Exactly, okay. yeah. But you're never late on that. You never miss payments. Sure. Um, you know when they change the rates a little bit, you just absorb it. Um, but it doesn't indicate anything that you'll ever pay this debt off. So all that happens every month is that creditor reports on your credit report that yep, the debt was paid as agreed on time, paid as agreed on time, and that becomes a very positive thing on your credit report even though it's a debt that might be growing every month. Um, you know, it might be you're on the 80-year plan to pay it off with just your minimum payments. Right. But from your credit score, credit report point of view, it's viewed as a positive. But from your overall financial health, it's actually quite negative having a bunch of credit card debt that you're only paying minimums on. That's not a recipe for you ever getting out of debt. Uh, which is which is what you don't think, right? That's like right. you just don't think that. So can you reduce... Uh, is it is it's reducing it's not reducing your credit rating but it's reducing that vulnerability to uh, not looking after your debt properly is there ways to do that what do you mean I'm sorry oh well I'm just thinking um, how do you how do you fix how do you fix not uh, getting out of that that cycle yeah and that's what you have now I understand what okay. you have to do is you've got to se- no you've got to essentially separate yourself from saying okay the credit score is the only indicator I'm paying my minimums credit score looks good so therefore I must be doing the right thing you've got to kind of break that model and say you know what even though the credit score looks great I know logically when I'm paying $200 minimum payment and $190 of it is going to interest, I'm probably not doing the right thing for me long-term financially. So you need to almost accept that for you to deal with a debt situation, your credit score has to be the first casualty. You're going to take a knock on the credit score, but this is a temporary thing. People can go zero credit score after a bankruptcy to getting a mortgage in about two years. So I think if people understand your credit score is something that can change over time, it doesn't need to be perfect every moment of your life, um, they'll generally have more of an ability to say, okay, I'm going to accept a short-term setback, deal with the debt, and then rebuild the credit again in the future. Got it. So uh, you've got a list here of being able to reduce, uh, being able to make make changes here. So making a large payment or closing an 
to count. Yeah. So what this was, Elaine, is I'm trying to show how it's counterintuitive. So we said, you know, here's some things you can do that your credit score is going to be high, but they're the wrong thing. You know, one is making all your minimum payments. Credit score is going to be high, but you may never get out of debt. Yes. You know, another might be having just tons of debt, you know, six different accounts. Um, none of them are in delinquency, but in the total aggregate, that's a lot of credit that you probably won't pay off. That doesn't hurt your credit score. Got a couple it. things that do hurt your credit score are actually the right thing for you to be doing, but they knock your credit score. So, Which is making that big payment. Yeah. So if you make a large payment on account or close an account, you lose all of the history there, especially if you close the account. See, so okay. where I'm saying there is you see people go and they want to apply for a mortgage. So they go through and they clear up their credit. They get rid of a few accounts they haven't used for a while. Smart thing to do, simplify your life from a credit score, credit rating point of view. The wrong thing to do because you might have just lost 10 years of history of everything paid on account on time. So closing accounts is generally not a good idea. It will impact your credit score negatively because you'll lose the history. Okay, so would you consolidate? Would you take that money that you're owing in one spot and put it on another? And that would be a bigger balance at the end of the month then too. Well, and, and that's it. If we're gaming the credit score, um, you might do that. But who knows? You shouldn't try to game the credit score. You should be doing what's right. right for you financially, which would be, yeah, if you can consolidate into a lower interest rate, then yeah, you'd want to do that and move it over to another account. But if that results in that account being, you know, more than a 50% credit balance utilization, meaning that if you've got a $10,000 limit and you consolidating puts it above roughly 5000 you doing the right thing might result in your credit score dropping because now you're using more of the available credit. Okay. So it's a bunch of counterintuitive Got stuff, it. right? You making the right decision often results in the credit score reflecting poorly. Now, how important is it to have a, a good credit history? That's an important question, Elaine, because for most of the time in our lives, it's not important at all. Interesting. It, it makes no difference. I remember being 18 years old and I walked into a stereo shop and the guy said, you know what, you should finance this over three years so you can build credit history. I thought, well, that's really smart. I'm happy he's trying to help me out. From 18 to 21, would I have ever gotten a mortgage? No. The only debt I needed was a student loan, which I didn't need any credit history for. But I could tell he was planting the seed for me as a young consumer saying, okay, I better be conscious of this credit rating type of thing. Interesting. You know, I sit down with folks and sometimes people are very proud to say, you know, I've got a great credit rating. And I say, okay, sometimes a little flippantly, okay, well, how's that working out for you? Right? If you've got this great credit rating, if it really means a lot, just go to the bank. I'm sure if you've got great credit, they'll loan you all the money you need to get out of debt. You're not going to need me. Well, what happens is they go to the bank and the bank says, yeah, you might have 900 credit, but I'm sorry, we're not comfortable to loan you any money because you don't have any assets or anything like that. So right. the credit score that you've been focused on, when it actually comes down to it, it may not do much for you. Right. When you actually need it is when you're sitting down to get a mortgage, to do a car financing, different things like that. And as I've said, two years of disciplined behavior, you can often build a credit score to what you would need, a good minimum level. You don't need to be focused on it your whole life. See, and I think the key here is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow the horn here for a second, mm -hmm. is to sit down with somebody like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee, to help me figure that stuff out because it is counterintuitive. Yeah. And if it's a credit score, a good one is something I've always worked towards. And then all of a sudden you're telling me how that that's not necessarily important. I'm at a bit of a loss because mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that got told it is important to have a good credit story, yeah. you know, history, exactly. If you're debt-free, having great credit is awesome, but if you've got debt, it's the wrong way to focus. Go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's a great website, just a ton of good information, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get a free consultation, find an, as well as you can find an office near you, 16 offices here in British Columbia. 
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.